Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Felice Gare has served as the director of AJC's Jacob Blaustein Institute for the Advancement of Human Rights, affectionately known here as JBI, since 1993. During that time, she has specifically focused on the rights of religious freedom, the rights of women, the prohibition of torture, and the struggle against anti-Semitism globally. She has been appointed a public member of at least nine U.S. delegations to United Nations human rights negotiations, including the Vienna World Conference on Human Rights in 1993 and the Beijing World Conference on Women in 1995. She was the first American elected to serve on the UN's Committee Against Torture. In fact, she served five terms. And she was appointed to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where she served as chair and advised the President and Congress on U.S. human rights policy. Even though she's not a lawyer or a court justice, On March 30th, she receives the Honorary Member Award of the American Society of International Law, the preeminent international society in this field. As we mark International Women's Day this week and Women's History this month, Felice is with us now to discuss today's human rights challenges and the challenges she has faced as a woman in the human rights world. Felice, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you, Manya. So, Felice, let's start with the beginning. Can you share with our listeners a little about your upbringing and how Jewish values shaped what you do today? Well, I had a fairly ordinary upbringing in a suburb of uh, New York City that had a fairly high percentage of Jews uh, living in it, Teaneck, New Jersey. I was shaped by all the usual things in a Jewish home. First of all, the holidays. Secondly, the values, the Jewish values, and awareness, a profound awareness of Jewish history, the history of annihilation, expulsion, discrimination, violence. Those were all some of the values, but also the Jewish values of universality, respect for all human life, equality before the law, sense of realism, sense that you can change your life by what you do and the choices that you make. These are all Uh, core Jewish values. And I guess I always have found the three-part expression by Rabbi Hillel to sum up the approach I've always taken to human rights and most other things in life. He said, if I'm not for myself, who will be? And if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So that's a sense of Jewish particularism, Jewish universalism, and realism as well. You went to Wellesley, class of 1968. It's an all-women's college. Was there a strong Jewish presence on campus there at the time? And did that part of your identity even play a role in your college experience? Well, I left, as I said, a town that had a fairly sizable Jewish population. And I went to Wellesley, and I felt like I was in another world. So even as long ago as 1964, 65, that era, I actually reached out to Hillel and participated in very minor uh, activities that uh, took place, usually a Friday night dinner or something like that. 
but it really didn't play a role except by making me recognize that I was a member of a very small minority. Here on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the movement to free Soviet Jewry as you pursued graduate work at Columbia and also during your undergrad days at Wellesley. Were you involved in that movement at all? Well, I was. I I had a great interest in Russian studies. And in my years at Wellesley, the Soviet Jewry movement was at a very nascent uh, stage. And I remember arguments with the uh, Soviet ambassador coming to campus and our specialist on Russian history arguing about whether this concern about the treatment of Soviet Jews was a valid concern. The uh, professor, who happened to have been Jewish, by the way, argued that uh, Jews in the Soviet Union were treated badly, but so was everybody else in the Soviet Union. And it really wasn't something that one needed to focus on, uh, especially. As I left uh, Wellesley and went to Columbia, where I studied political science and was at the uh, Russian Institute, um, now the Harriman Institute, I found that the treatment of Soviet Jews was different in many ways, and the capacity to do something about it was serious. Uh, We knew people who had relatives. We knew people who wanted to leave. The whole Soviet Jewry movement was focused around the desire to leave the country, not to change it. That was an explicit decision of Jewish leaders around the world and in the Soviet Union itself. And so the desire to leave was something you could realize, document the cases, bring the names forward, engage American officials in a way that the Jewish community had never done before with cases and examples demanding that every place you went, every negotiation that took place was accompanied by lists of names and cases whose plight would be brought to the attention of the authorities. And that really mobilized people, including people like me. I also worked to focus on the the agenda of internal change in the Soviet Union. And that meant also looking at other human rights issues, why and how freedom of religion or belief was suppressed in this militantly atheist state, why and how freedom of expression, freedom of association, and just about every other right was really severely limited, and what the international standards were at that time. After I left Colombia, that was around the time that the famous manifesto from Andrei Sakharov, the world-famous physicist, Nobel Prize winner, was uh, made public. It was around the time that other kinds of dissident uh, materials were becoming better known about life inside uh, the Soviet Union post-Khrushchev. So you left Columbia with a master's degree, Cold War ends, and you take a job at the Ford Foundation that has you traveling all around Eastern Europe looking to end human rights abuses, assessing the challenges that face that region. I want to ask you about the treatment of women and what you witnessed about, well, the mistreatment of women in these regions. And does that tend to be a common denominator around the world when you assess human rights abuses? Well, there's no question that the treatment of women is different than the treatment of men, and it's true all over the world. But when I traveled in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union in the height of those years, height of the Cold War and so forth, uh, the issues of women's rights actually weren't one of the top issues on the agenda because the Soviet Union and the East European countries 
appeared to be doing more for women than the Western countries. They had them in governance. They had them in the parliament. They purported to support equality for women. It took some years for Soviet feminist dissidents to find a voice and to begin to point out all the ways in which they were treated in the same condescending patriarchal style as elsewhere. But in those years, that was not a big issue in the area. It was unusual for me, a 20-something-year-old woman from the United States, to be traveling around Eastern Europe and Soviet Union, meeting with high officials and others and uh, on behalf of the uh, Ford Foundation, trying to develop programming that would involve people-to-people contacts, that would involve developing programs where there was uh, common expertise like management training and things of that sort. And I was uh, really an odd duck in that situation, and I felt it. I mentioned in my introduction the Beijing World Conference on Women. Can you reflect a little on what had a lasting impact there? Well, the Beijing World Conference on Women was the largest, remains the largest uh, conference that the United Nations has ever organized. There were over 35,000 women there, about 17,000 at the intergovernmental conference. I was on the uh, U.S. delegation there. The simple statement that women's rights are human rights may seem hackneyed today. But when that was affirmed in the 1995 Beijing outcome document, it was a major political and conceptual breakthrough. It was largely focused on getting the UN to accept that the rights of women were actually international human rights and that they weren't something different. They weren't private or outside the reach of investigators and human rights uh, bodies. It was an inclusive statement, and it was a it was a mind altering statement in the women's rights movement. It not only reaffirmed that women's rights are human rights, but it went further in addressing the problems facing women in the language of human rights. The earlier world conferences on women talked about equality but they didn't identify violations of those rights. They didn't demand accountability of those rights. And they said absolutely nothing about creating mechanisms by which you could monitor, review, and hold people accountable, which is the rights paradigm. Uh, Beijing changed all that. It was a violations approach that was quite different from anything that existed before that. Did anything get forgotten? We talked about what had a lasting impact But what seems to have been forgotten or have fallen to the wayside? Oh, I think it's just the opposite. I think the things that were in the Beijing conference have become fuller and addressed in greater detail and are more commonly part of what goes on in the international discourse on women's rights and uh, the status of women in public life uh, and certainly at the international level. Uh, that's, That's the case. Uh, I'll give you just one example, the Convention Against Torture. I mean, when I became a member of the committee, the 10-person committee, I was the only woman. The committee really had, in 11 years, it, it had maybe said four or five things about the treatment of women and the way that um, torture, ill-treatment, uh, inhuman, degrading treatment uh, may affect women. It looked at the world through the eyes of male prisoners in detention. 
and it didn't look at the world through the eyes of women who suffer private violence, gender-based violence, that is, uh, that the state looks away from and ignores and therefore sanctions and to a certain extent endorses. And it didn't identify the kinds of things that affect women, including women who are imprisoned, and why and where in many parts of the world, what one does in terms of education or dress or behavior may lead you into a situation where you're being abused, either in a prison or outside a prison. And these are issues that are now part of the regular uh, review, for example, at the Committee Against Torture, issues of, of trafficking, issues of gender-based violence, issues of the Sharia law punishments, the Hadood punishments of uh, whipping and stoning are part of the concern of the committee, which they weren't before. In other words, having that woman's perspective, having your perspective on that committee was really important and really changed and broadened the discussion. Absolutely. When I first joined the committee, the first session I was at, we had a review of China. And so I very politely asked a question about the violence and coercion associated with the population policy in China, as you know, forced abortions and things of that sort. This was a question that had come up before the women's convention, the CEDAW, and I thought it was only appropriate that it also come up in the Committee Against Torture. Uh, in our discussion afterwards, the uh, very uh, stern chairman of the committee, a former constable, said to me, uh, you know, this might be of interest to you, Miss Gare, but this has nothing to do with the mandate of this committee. I explained to him why it did in some detail. And when I finished pointing out uh, all of those elements, including the fact that the people carried out these practices on the basis of state policy, when I finished, there was a silence and uh, the most senior person in the room who had uh, been involved in these issues for decades said, I'm quite certain we can accommodate Ms. Gare's concerns in the conclusions. And they did. That's the kind of thing that happens when you look at issues from a different perspective and and uh, and raise them. You talked about being an odd duck in your 20s as a woman traveling around Eastern Europe trying to address these challenges. I'm curious if that woman in her 20s would have been able to stand up to this committee like that and, and give that thorough an explanation. Or did it take some years of experience of witnessing these issues, perhaps of being ignored, I think we learn, you know, as we go through life, you learn new things. And I learned new things along the way. Um, I learned about the universal uh, norms. I learned about um, uh, how to apply them, uh, how they had been applied and how they hadn't been applied. And uh, in that process, um, developed uh, what I would say is a, um, um, a sharper way of looking at these issues. But the Bosnian conflict in particular... Um, made the issue of uh, gender-based violence against women, especially in war, but not only in war, <clears throat> into a um, mainstream issue and helped uh, propel these issues uh, both inside the United Nations and outside. The awareness changed. I remember asking the International Red Cross uh, representatives in, in uh, uh, Croatia just 
just across the border uh, from Bosnia, if they had encountered any victims of gender-based violence or rape? And they said, no. And I said, did you ask them about these concerns? And they sort of looked down and looked embarrassed, looked at each other and looked back at me and said, oh, there were no words. There were no understandings of looking at the world this way. And that has changed. That has changed dramatically today. I mean, if you look at the situation in Ukraine, the amount of gender-based violence that has been documented is horrifying, just horrifying, but it's been documented. So is the world of human rights advocacy male-dominated, female-dominated? Is it fairly balanced these days? And, And has that balance made the difference in what you're talking about? You know, I wrote an article in 1988, the 40th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, about why women's rights weren't being addressed. Um, in and one of the one of the points I drew attention to was that the fact was the fact that the heads of almost all the major organizations at the time were all male, um, and that it wasn't. It wasn't seen as a, as a concern. A lot of that has changed. Uh, there's really a, a, a real variety of perspectives now that, that are brought to bear. So we've talked a lot about the importance of that woman's perspective. Does a Jewish perspective matter as well? Oh, on every issue, on every issue. And, you know, uh, I worked a great deal on freedom of religion and belief as an issue. That's a core issue of, uh, of AJC, and it's a, it's, a, it's a fundamental rights issue. And it struck me as surprising that with all the attention to freedom of religion, the concern about anti-Semitic acts was not being documented by mainstream human rights organizations. And it wasn't being documented by the UN experts on freedom of religion or belief either. I drew this to the attention of Dr. Ahmed Shahid, who was recently uh, ending his term as a special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief. And he was really very struck by this. And he went and he did a little bit of research. And he found out that since computerized records had been prepared at the United Nations, that there had been no attention, no attention at all to cases of uh, alleged anti-Semitic incidents. And he began a project to record the kinds of problems that existed and to identify what could be done about it. We helped him in the sense that we organized a couple of colloquia. We brought people from all over the world together to talk about the dimensions of the problem and uh, the uh, documentation that they did and the proposals that they had for addressing it. And he wrote a, a brilliant report in 2019 uh, setting out the problems of global anti-Semitism. And he followed that up in 2022 before leaving his position with what he called an action plan for combating anti-Semitism, which has concrete, specific ex- suggestions for all countries around the world as to what they can do to help combat anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic acts, including, and, and to some extent starting with, adopting the Uh, uh, working definition on anti-Semitism of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, Uh, but also activities in in the area of education, training, 
training of law enforcement officials, documentation, and public action. And it's a real contribution uh, to the international discourse and to understanding that freedom of religion or belief belongs to everyone. Do you believe that Dr. Shahid's report is being absorbed, comprehended by those that need to hear it and understand it? I've been uh, delighted to see the way that the uh, European Union has engaged with uh, Dr. Shahid in his report, has developed uh, uh, standards and uh, expectations for all 27 member states, uh, and that other co- and that other countries in other parts of the world uh, have done the same. Yeah, I do think they're engaging with it. I hope there'll be a lot more. Right. So on the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, JBI issued a report that sounded the alarm on the widespread violations committed against Ukrainians. You mentioned the amount of gender-based violence since that has taken place and the other catastrophic consequences of this war. Felice, you've been on the front row of Eastern European affairs and human rights advocacy in that region. From your perspective, and I know this is a big question, how did this war happen? I'll just start by saying it didn't start in 2022. Following the breakup of the Soviet Union, or even during the breakup, there was a period where the 15 constituent union republics of the Soviet Union developed a greater national awareness, really. Some of them had been independent, uh, some of them hadn't been, but they developed much greater uh, awareness When the Soviet Union collapsed, the 15 countries, including Russia as one of the 15, became independent entities. And aside from having more members in the United Nations and other, and the uh, Council of Europe and places like that, it led to a much more robust activity in terms of respecting human rights and other areas of, of endeavor in each of those uh, countries. Uh, the situation in Russia with a head of state who who has been there, with the one exception, a couple of years, for 20 years, has seen a, um, a kind of an angry desire to reestablish a empire. That's the only thing you can say really about it. If they can't dominate by having a pro-Russian group in charge in the country, then there have been uh, invasions, there have been Russian forces, Russian-aligned forces sent to the different countries. So whether it's Georgia or Moldova or Ukraine, we've seen this pattern. And unfortunately, what happened in 2022 is the most egregious and, I would say, blatant such example. In 2014, the the Russians argued that it was local Russian-speaking little green men who were conducting hostilities in these places, or it was local people who wanted to realign with Russia who were demanding changes and so forth. But in the 2022 events, uh, Russia's forces invaded wearing Russian insignia and making it quite clear that this was a matter of state policy that they were pursuing and that they they weren't going to give up. And it's led to the tragic developments 
that we've all seen inside the country and the horrific violence, the terrible widespread human rights violations. Uh, And in war, we know that human rights violations are usually the worst. And uh, so uh, the one uh, good spot on the horizon, the degree to which these abuses have been documented, it's unprecedented to have so much documentation so early in a conflict like this, which someday may lead to redress and accountability for those who perpetrated it. But right now in the middle of these events, it's just a horror. What other human rights situations do we need to be taking more seriously now? And where has there been significant progress? Well, I'll talk about the problem spots, if I may, for a minute. Everyone points to North Korea as the situation without parallel. That's what a UN Commission of Inquiry said, without parallel in the world. The situation in Iran, well, you just need to watch what's happened to the protesters, the uh, the women and others who have protested. Over 500 people in the streets have died because of this, 15,000 people imprisoned, and Iran's prisons are known for ill treatment and torture. The situation in Afghanistan is atrocious. Activities of the Taliban, which they were known for in the 1990s, are being brought back. They are normalizing discrimination. They are engaged in uh, probably the most hardline gender discrimination we've seen anywhere, where women can't work outside the home, girls can't be educated, uh, political participation is denied, the Constitution has been thrown out. Um, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, things. The latest is women can't go to parks, they can't go to university, and they can't work for NGOs. This continues. It's a a major crisis. Uh, Well, there are other countries from Belarus to Sudan to Uzbekistan and China that we could also talk about at great length lots of problems in the world, and not enough effort to expose them, address them, and try to ameliorate them. So what do we do about that, Felice? What can our listeners do about that when we hear this kind of grim report? Work harder, pay attention when you hear about rights issues, support rights organizations, take up cases, seek redress, Be concerned about the victims. All these things need to be done. I don't know how you maintain your composure and your cool, Felice, because you have faced so much in terms of challenges and pushback. Thank you so much for all you have done for women, for the Jewish people, and for the world at large. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Manya. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 